Hey everyone, if you love listening to Curbsiders and want to enhance the experience, then now is a great time to join the Curbsiders Patreon with new annual memberships where you can save 10% off the monthly rate. You'll have the option to hear all the episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash curbsiders. This is a great way to use that CME money that's probably burning a hole in your pocket plus support the show so we can keep bringing you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, mini series like teach and addiction medicine, our digest newsletter, and of course, expand our video content. So join the Cashlack family today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. Matt, a patient walks into a psychoanalyst's office and asks, so how does this work? Do I just lie on the couch? And the psychoanalyst says, actually, it works much better if you tell the truth. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Paul, what do you call a depressed man with a robotic arm? <laughs> oh, no. I don't like that this is going. Go ahead and tell me. A cyborg. Like, sigh? You yeah, know? No. I got it. No. They're, they're, all right. they're, all, they're always the funny ones when you have to explain them afterwards. <laughs> all right. What else, do you, what else do you got, Paul? All right. My last one. Just see if we can make Dad laugh. Why does Pavlov have such nice hair? I have no idea. Because he conditioned it. <laughs> I think that's the winner. Yeah. Yeah. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Franquato, here with my great friend and America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Matt, thanks, how are you? I'm good, you just told some hilarious puns. I'm sure the audience agrees. And uh, tonight we'll be talking about uh, bipolar disorder. We have a great guest, Dr. Kevin Johns. And uh, before we get to our guest and our, our guest co-host, Paul, can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure, Matt. Thanks for the chance to do so. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we have a super producer and special co-host with us, Dr. Deb Gorth. Deb, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, I'm excited to learn about bipolar. <laughs> you can tell she's in the throes of residency right now, Paul. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> the, the, the enthusiasm. That's the energy that only a resident could pores. muster. Just too tired to even feign enthusiasm at this point. Like, let's just be over with. We just recorded an hour and plus change episode. So, all right. So, Deb, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we talked to and, and what we talked about? Yeah, so uh, we just had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Johns. So, Kevin Johns is a psychiatrist. Um, he does consultation liaison psychiatry at Ohio State University uh, in the Wexler Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. He also sees inpatient consults in the General Medicine Hospital uh, and provides collaborative services in ambulatory settings. He did a really great job teaching us about how we can recognize bipolar disorder and kind of the ins and outs of its treatment. So without further ado, let's get into it. Kevin, we've been talking for a while. We got our, hopefully our technical difficulties out of the way. And now the audience just, they need to hear a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine. Yeah, so um, I uh, 
uh, actually have been playing competitive Pokemon cards for about the past year with my seven-year-old son. And so we've been traveling <laughs> around, uh, actually around the country uh, so- sometimes uh, on weekends in order to compete in huge tournaments. And so that's been a really great way to, to bond with my son. Uh, wow, that is a that is an answer I was not expecting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you guys won anything? Uh, yeah, I've won some Pokemon card packs and yeah, um, you know, we're still, still early in terms of our, our journey to becoming Pokemon masters, but, uh, you know, we're, we're working our way up though. And there's like 10 million cards, right? There's Um, there, you'll never collect them all. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's so many cards to collect. And so I'm, I'm more interested in just playing the game and, you know, um, competing, but, uh, there's definitely lots of people out there that love collecting and that's, that's yeah, my, my kids were definitely, I don't know that they have a lot of cards. I don't know that they know how to play the game. They just want to collect, (laughs) to collect them. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. I knew there was a game involved. I got to be honest with y'all. Like, I didn't think there was card collection, but I didn't Yes, you did. Them. Come on. It's like a Magic <laughs> the Gathering type me. thing, Paul. You didn't know? <laughs> no. I think Paul's a secret Pokemon card player. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can see you that. that rumor going. All right, Kevin. I let's 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 pivot a little bit since I have nothing to contribute to the Pokemon discourse, but we do like to ask about um you can tell us about a Pokemon related failure or really kind of any favorite failure that you have that you learned something from. Yeah. So my favorite the failure that I've kind of learned, learned something from was when I went on a trip to France, Southern France with my, uh, my father-in-law and, uh, my wife. And we were, uh, it was very, you know, grand plans to sail a boat down a canal through southern France for several days. And, but we landed there in the middle of a huge heat wave uh, and our refrigeration on the boat broke. And so we were all just like sweltering heat hot and it was humid and we were you know, surrounded by mosquitoes. And it was um, definitely like we were very cranky on the boat because we were all stuck on a small boat together. Uh, but we, you know, I think we, it we made a lot of really cool memories though. It's one of those things that I wouldn't want to do again, but I'm so glad I did it. And so, you know, I, I think I, you know, I learned, you know, things don't have to be perfect. Like you, you know, even misadventures, you know, can, you know, bring people together and, you know, create lots of lasting memories. And I had some of the best seafood I ever had in my life. So. That sounds kind of dangerous though. I... <laughs> <laughs> did you have to call the coast guard equivalent, uh, the French coast guard equivalent to help you out, get you some water that wasn't boiling hot? Uh, no, luckily there were like lots of small towns that we could stop at along the way to, to get like water and things like that. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's making me feel better about this situation. <laughs> it sounded scary. Yeah, if I was involved, it'd be like a Lord of the Fly situation almost immediately. Like two hours in, I would—that's <laughs> <laughs> what it felt like when we were in the middle in, yeah. of it. <laughs> so I'm still in training, so I'd really appreciate um, if you could tell us some meaningful advice or feedback that you've received during your career or training that maybe I could apply to my career or training. Sure, um, I think early on as a medical student, one of my mentors gave me the feedback that like when I was working with him, like he was my gold standard and I should, you know, try to emulate his, you know, his practices and his thinking as much as possible. And, you know, once I'm, you know, in independent practice, I can pick like what, what techniques or what, what, uh, uh, philosophies, you know, I want to apply to my own practice. But when you're working with like an attending for the, you know, f- especially for the first time, you know, really try to try to emulate that attending and have that, 
you know, tending to be, you know, like your gold standard. And, um, you, you know, you'll learn some things that some styles that you like and some things that you don't, but, you know, once you're out of training, you'll be able to pick from all the different, different styles that you've experienced and, you know, make your own style of how you want to practice medicine. And Deb, since you work at the same institution as Paul Williams, if he's ever, or, or you did, if he was ever your attending, you would definitely want to emulate everything he did. Yeah, he is He is my gold standard, especially when it comes to cats. <laughs> hey, yeah. Well, we, we have a lot to get to, Deb. So let's let's go to a case from Cashlack and start talking about bipolar. So this is a 20-year-old college student who's coming into your office for a checkup during winter break from his freshman year at Cashlack University. His mother has become increasingly concerned because during the holidays, she noticed that her son stays in bed until 1 p.m. He's not engaging with the family like he was during the summer. Um, she's really worried that he might be depressed. For the past two weeks, he lost interest in food. Um, he can't concentrate on anything. Your patient in the middle of the exam interrupts his mother, um, and he insists that he doesn't see what the problem is. Uh, he just doesn't want to do anything. Uh, he goes on to tell you that he's a successful engineering student. Um, he has a good group of friends at school, um, but he concedes that he and his girlfriend broke up a few months ago and he's been feeling a little bit down. He meets all the criteria for depression. For greater than two weeks, he experienced five or more depressive symptoms. It seems like he has depressed mood, diminished interest, um, appetite disturbance, sleep disturbance. Um, so he's depressed, right? And we should just prescribe an, an SSRI and move on with the episode. <laughs> yep. I mean, we could all go, go to bed and yeah, no, actually. So, so yeah, this is actually a great case because, um, you know, it shows the complexity of what might appear to be, you know, a very straightforward presentation. So, so yes, you're right. He meets all the criteria for a major depressive episode, but there's multiple conditions that can cause a major depressive episode. And so, yeah, so, um, at this point, all we know is that he has, criteria for a major depressive episode. And the next step would be to drill down and see what is causing the major depressive episode. Yeah, this because this seems like in primary care, you get tons of patients coming in um, saying they're depressed. Sometimes you get a family member with them saying, I think they're depressed and asking you to prescribe medication or connect them to therapy. And I have to admit, uh, it's it's not always like first thing on my mind. If, if it's a younger person, I, I usually tend to think more about um, bipolar. But when patients are a little older, it doesn't always cross my mind. And you might fall into the trap of prescribing like uh, just a conventional antidepressant without doing anything further. So what questions do you ask to make sure we don't make that mistake? Yeah. So, you know, when someone comes in with a major depressive episode, you want to make sure that it's not due to you know, like a bipolar disorder or not due to schizoaffective disorder, for example, um, or not, not due to like substances or another medical condition. So, you know, assuming you know, that this person doesn't have like hypothyroidism or other, you know, kind of medical issues that could create like depressive symptoms, um, you know, we really want to figure out, uh, like you said, is this bipolar disorder or is this major depressive disorder? Um, and so some of the questions I, I will ask is, you know, I will, I'll ask them, um, uh, assuming that they've never been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll ask them, you know, have there been times where your mood has been different from 
depressed or even the opposite of depressed or and where you've been supercharged and had so much energy that you didn't know what to do with yourself and for days and days on end and you know people thought you were behaving strangely and I'll I'll lead with something like that and kind of see what they say um, and if they say like, yes, you know, I've, uh, I've had some times like that, then I'll explore further. Like, okay, tell me more about that time. You know, what else was different about you during that time? Or if his mom was there, I'll ask like, you know, did you notice, you know, did, when, did you talk to him on the phone during that time? Did you notice any changes? Um, but, uh, you know, if they, if they say no, you know, then, then I think that's, that's usually pretty, pretty helpful. But if they say yes, you know, definitely have to explore further and ask them for like more details. How do you, cause it looks like if I remember correctly, the DSM five criteria, you have to have the behavior be noticed by someone or has to be significant enough to actually cause impairment, depending on sort of what type of mm-hmm. bipolar we're talking about. But if you don't have a, an additional collateral information at the visit, how do you ask about that? Or how do you assess if a patient yeah. is appear different to other? Do you just ask? Is it that straightforward? It's it's hard because, um, you know, a lot of times when patients are manic, they they might not find it distressing and they may even like the feeling of being manic uh, often or uh, other times they just don't realize that that's what's happening so um, a lot of times even you know patients with history of manic episode if you ask them you know they might not be able to really identify with it Um, so it is really hard it's really challenging Um, as far as you know kind of how would I ask about like the um, you know the functional impairment or the symptoms being noticed by others yeah I, I asked them you know you know, did other people notice that you were acting differently? And if they say yes, I'll say, well, what did they say about you? Did they say that you were doing really well or did they, were they were they actually worried about you? And then as far as functional impairment, yeah, I'll, I'll ask them, you know, what, what did, you know, did that cause any problems for you? Did you, you know, end up regretting that? Or, you know, uh, what kind of troubles did that, did that cause you? Uh, did you have to go to the hospital or go to the emergency department because of this? The other thing is just um, if the patient will let you, you know, uh, being able to talk to their family member or partner or someone who's seen one of these episodes firsthand can be really helpful. Although, you know, that does take additional time, which can be challenging in an office setting. And yeah, I was surprised to read that depression is the like main presenting symptom of bipolar disorder. I always thought that you had to have hypomania or mania to, to kick it off. I didn't realize that it could be depression as a presenting symptom or that I guess maybe it could be a mixed episode. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, so patients with bipolar disorder, they will have, you know, both manic episodes and depressive episodes. And actually, the depressive episodes for most patients are actually the most common episodes, and also the most impairing. Um, So about two thirds of patients symptomatic times with bipolar disorder on average is going to be in the depressive phase. And so there's, um, I've met plenty of patients where they've had maybe one or two manic episodes their entire lives, and then just numerous depressive episodes after that. And um, one of the challenges of bipolar disorder is that, you know, for thinking of it as uh, having bipolar disorder as like a trait and then being manic or depressed as a state, you know, until someone has had, you know, kind of that perfect storm of, you know, uh, you know, genetics and environments to trigger a manic episode, it's, you really can't identify, um, identify them as bipolar disorder, even though they may have, you know, the underlying genetic vulnerabilities and everything. So that's, um, that is a really challenging aspect of our field and um, especially a, a big limitation of um, using, you know, the DSM-5 as a, like a phenotypical diagnostic uh, strategy. Um, I like psychiatry because there's no blood test to tell me like what uh, condition a patient has and, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm my own diagnostic instrument, but 
Like, honestly, if there was a blood test to tell me uh, or help me diagnose the condition, it would be bipolar disorder because it is so it is so challenging. Like I, I tell people, unless you see the patient manic, it is really hard to know for sure mm-hmm. um, if they truly have bipolar disorder or not. Paul, another thing, like we, Paul and I are always just looking for the, just give me that test that tells me yes or no. That's what I want. Like, I want a clear answer, but a lot of the times, a lot of the times we don't get that, Paul. I, we've never, not once. Uh, yeah, medicine is awesome. <laughs> yeah, especially in psychiatry. And it's, uh, and it's, it's tough, you know, like the, a person with bipolar disorder, if they become manic, you know, the, the, the day before they had their first manic episode, they would meet criteria for major depressive disorder. This episode is brought to you by Locum Story. What has changed in healthcare? Well, the opportunities, the lifestyle, and you. Your needs, wants, and goals are probably different than they were five years ago. Now is the perfect time to explore Locum Tenens' opportunities and see how they might fit into your career story. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone, and the variety of opportunities might surprise you. Start your research at locumstory.com, an unbiased educational resource about Locum's tenants. You'll hear firsthand stories about the many different reasons why physicians choose locums and how it works for them. The Locum Story website also has tools that let you explore locums pay and demand for your specialty and compare different locums tenants agencies. There's even a simple quiz to see if locums is right for you. Locums could be an essential part of your career that adapts to your needs. Do your own research at locumstory.com. So you gave us the questions, you know, you ask about their mood, their energy, any strange behaviors that they've had or that others have noticed and then like functional impairment. And if, you know, if we're, if we start to suspect based on those answers that maybe there's something going on, like which Mm -hmm. tool do you like to go to, to, to then sort out, like, is this a formal diagnosis or not? Yeah, I think, I think especially in primary care where you guys aren't used to like asking for all the diagnostic criteria all day, you know, I Mm -hmm. think having a, a, um, screening tool can be really helpful. Um, and you just have to know the psychometric properties of the screening tools though. So the most common one that I see in practice is called the mood disorder questionnaire or MDQ. Have you guys heard of that before or seen it before? I have not used it. No. Okay. It's a terrible test. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, yes. I'll rant about it for a minute. Um, it's it's widely distributed and it's easy to use because it's a patient uh, report form, so patients mm-hmm. can fill it out even you know while they're sitting in your lobby, for example. Um, but it has really terrible um, positive predictive value. Its negative predictive value is pretty useful. Uh, is pretty good. So I, I kind of consider it like the, the D dimer of psychiatry, like a negative <laughs> test is helpful, but if they screen positive, they're actually more likely to have like, you know, borderline personality disorder or ADHD or something other than bipolar disorder, even though it's, it's, you know, presented as a bipolar screening tool. Ah, I see. Um, and so, uh, but that's a, that's a common one that, um, that you'll see out there. Uh, I, I still use the MDQ, especially in primary uh, care settings, because I, like I said, if it's, if it's negative, you can be fairly certain that the patient doesn't have bipolar disorder. Um, it's just that when you have a positive test, you're still left with a lot of work to do because uh, it's it's not clear that they truly have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. There's probably some kind of comorbidity, but it's not necessarily bipolar disorder. Um, another screening tool that I do like to use better is called the CIDI 3.0 or the CIDI bipolar screening mm-hmm. tool. It's a little bit harder to use because it's a guided interview. So it's essentially a script. And you read the script and um, to the patient and ask them uh, about the about the bipolar symptoms, and it kind of emulates like how we would ask because it it really tries to capture and emphasize to the patient that 
all these symptoms should be happening at once. It's not just, you know, one night of like, you know, not needing sleep or one, one day of, you know, talking more, being really excited, but, you know, really it's like an extended period of all these things happening at once. And so, mm. um, so it gives you kind of a nice script to follow. And then you can kind of see, uh, how many of the symptoms, you know, the patient endorses during that time. And then that's, that's has much better sensitivity and specificity, uh, for bipolar disorder. And, and you say this script, it's, it's got, this is the one that has like, the two STEM questions to start. And then if the, if one of those is positive, you go to the next, the, the next part. And, but it's not, it's not super long, right? It, it might, this looks like it might take five, 10 minutes to do. Uh, how, how long do you estimate it takes to, to finish? Yeah, I would say, yeah, five, five to 10 minutes, um, I think is a, a, a fair, fair estimate. Yeah. If it's a test that takes like 20 or 30 minutes to administer, it's, it's just not going to get done in primary care because that's like the, your whole visit time. But 10 minutes, you still have some time in the visit to talk about the results. And so it might, th- this one seemed a little more practical to me when I was, when I was looking through it, it was mentioned in a couple of the papers. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the one that I recommend, uh, when I'm, when I'm concerned about bipolar disorder and I'm really looking for like a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, if I'm just trying to like try to screen it out in a patient where like, I, I don't think they really have bipolar disorder anyway, like the MDQ is a fine self-report tool that can, um, rule it out essentially. But, um, but if, if I have a patient where I'm really concerned that they might truly have bipolar disorder, the CIDI is what I tell my primary care colleagues to, to use. Okay. And that one's pretty easy to find for the audience. We can, of course, link, uh, you know, link to the paper um, and, and some resources in the show notes for that. But that's that's a good one. Um, any other ones that you wanted to highlight? Um, you know, there, there's other rating scales out there. Like there's like the Young Mania rating scale that you'll see. But those are more for like kind of acute manic presentations. And mm-hmm. I think especially in primary care, like you're going to see these patients for the most part in their depressive phase of the illness. Yeah. So um, I think tools that ask about you know, bipolar or manic symptoms in retrospect, like the CIDI are more practical. Okay. Yeah. Um, Deborah, Paul, any other questions about this, this part of it that you had? Um, well, I did was since while we're taking a history and we're, we're trying to kind of dig down into whether or not this is bipolar or not, I, I was going to ask how important is say the family history in this? Does that move the needle either way? If there's no family history of any kind of mental health issues, or if they said, Oh yes, my, my mom and dad are also bipolar or have a diagnosis, like how, how substantive is that or how meaningful is that when you're actually and compared to the, the rest of the history that you're taking? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, family history, um, certainly uh, bipolar disorder can run in families. And so if someone has a family history of bipolar disorder, it increases my uh, index of suspicion. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is just that major depressive disorder is also just a, ver- a much more common condition. So even in someone who has a family history of uh, bipolar disorder, they still may have major depressive disorder as well. Um, it's not necessarily bipolar disorder, uh, but certainly if they do have a, a positive family history, especially like, you know, first degree relatives or multiple, you know, first degree relatives that, you know, increases my index of suspicion a lot. I think something I struggle with, this feels kind of like the family history of rheumatoid arthritis, where it's the patient may just not understand what that diagnosis is or how it's differentiated from other more common diagnoses. So like if a patient endorses it, I still fairly or not sort of second guess whether or not the, the family member Julie has the diagnosis. Cause I think there's such a baseline misunderstanding of what bipolar actually represents. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. A lot of times when patients tell me that they had a family member who had bipolar disorder, I'll ask like, you know, was it formally diagnosed by a mental health professional um, or what kind of symptoms they had? Because yeah, you know, the 
the kind of colloquial use of like bipolar disorder is very different from how, you know, like mental health clinicians use it. Yeah. You know, I think about like the, like Katy Perry song, hot and cold, like you're hot and you're cold. Yes. And you're no, uh, something, something love bipolar. Like I think like most, uh, you know, uh, non mental health people, you know, think of bipolar as like people who, you know, rapidly go from one mood to another and, you know, or they, uh, they'll say, you know, I love you, then I hate you or things like that. When, um, when we think about bipolar disorder in the psychiatric sense, you know, we're talking about sustained mood episodes that last, you know, a week or longer. Um, and, you know, they just, it's not just, you know, flipping from, you know, one, one mood to another in a single day, you know, having, having more than one mood in a single day doesn't mean you have bipolar disorder. It just means you're a, a normal human being, you know, um, uh, or there are other conditions that can cause, you know, rapid, uh, mood, mood shifts, like within a single day, you know, things such as like uh, borderline personality disorder, for example. Uh, but yeah, the way that we think about bipolar disorder is very, very different from how like, you know, uh, lay people use the term bipolar disorder. There's a recent New England Journal of Medicine review article on bipolar disorder, and it's wonderful. This is not me making fun of it. But like the first paragraph is like, it's normal to be happy when something good happens and sad when something bad, like they just sort of normalize moods, which I really enjoyed as an opening <laughs> paragraph to the a New England Journal of Medicine article. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing I noticed just while we're talking about, you know, things that would raise our suspicion, it just seemed like the list of the comorbid, like other psychiatric illness or other things that would kind of be in the DSM. So like substance use, ang uh, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD are all like more likely to be present in addition to bipolar, is that fair to say? I mean, so it sounds like substance use might make the diagnosis a little bit like, is it is this a substance use problem or substance use or withdrawal or is this bipolar? But can you speak to how you sort that out? Like how many disorders somebody can have? Uh, yeah, they can have, uh, yeah, many com comorbid disorders and comorbidity is very common, you know, substance use disorders, um, borderline personality disorders, ADHD, trauma, PTSD, um, all those things can cause like, you know, mood lability and uh, create similar symptoms as bipolar disorder. And they also can be present in a person, uh, in a patient with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. um, you know, substance use uh, is, is a tricky one because, you know, uh, some people may develop manic-like symptoms if they're using like methamphetamines, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, um, there's also patients who would never use methamphetamines, but then they get manic and they start taking, you know, much more risky, you know, uh, engaging in risky behaviors and they might start using drugs. Mm. And so it's, you know, it's hard to tell like what came first, you know, the, the drug or the mania. Um, and so a lot of times with these, uh, uh, in these situations, you know, with, uh, with patients where there are a lot of these comorbidities, um, it's hard to know for sure, like from one diagnostic interview and you just have to follow them over time, sometimes for years before you get a clear understanding of what, what's actually going on. Mm. I tell patients all the time that, you know, this is the first time I'm meeting you and it's really hard for me to know for sure if you truly had bipolar disorder or not. Um, you know, I might say like, these are things that make me concerned, but I, I also could be wrong. And I tell patients that all the time that, you know, just off of one first meeting, I can't you know, 100% diagnosed them with bipolar disorder. So one of my colleagues makes this point a lot in that, you know, patients will we'll often talk about patients with substance use disorder as sort of self-managing their symptoms, like, oh, this patient's anxious, so that's why they they have heroin use. And her point is, like, that's, heroin use is not the behavior of an anxious person. As someone who's filled with anxiety, like, that would make me even more anxious to consider it. So, like, that, it's much more characteristic of someone who might be having a manic episode. And she's she's of the opinion that's probably even underdiagnosed uh, that being bipolar and patients with substance use disorder, which the more I learn, the more I, I kind of agree with. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you know, I think there's also just uh, so many, so many patients with substance use disorder also have trauma too, which you know, I think changes like how they how they cope with emotions and difficult emotions and make it more more easy for them to to seek out you know coping skills like uh, like using substances, whereas people without trauma may may not. And then there's also you know people that also genetically respond to you know substances and differently, you know, so, uh, you know, for example, there's some people with like opioid use disorder where they say like opioids energize them. And, mm-hmm. um, whereas, you know, most other people would consider it a downer. And, uh, so, you know, people have like different biological responses to these substances that can kind of change their, their risk of, you know, developing a, a use disorder. Deb, let's go on to the next part of the case and then we can keep, keep going yeah. on the diagnosis portion here. So after taking a more detailed history, you learn that during finals, he barely slept for five days without feeling tired while he completed his engineering final project, which at the time he thought he should sell to NASA. His girlfriend broke up with him because he cheated on her after turning in the project, something he still regrets. Later on, his mom chimes in and says that um, her brother suffered from bipolar disorder. Lastly, after you appropriately scream for self-harm, he insists that he has never thought about hurting himself or suicide. So, you know, just that we've kind of gone over um, some of the screening tools for bipolar, but can we just nail down exactly how you define bipolar? Yeah, so so the DSM-5 uh, would uh, define bipolar as, you know, having had at least uh, one manic episode in, in their lifetime. Um, and, um, with a manic episode being, you know, period lasting at least one week of, uh, elevated, expansive or irritated mood along with increased goal directed activity. Um, uh, and they have to be accompanied by the you know, other, other manic symptoms as well. You know, things like hypersexuality, grandiosity, flight of ideas, uh, you know, things like that. So, um, so, you know, I, I really think of, bipolar disorder as it's as a syndrome and because like all the all these symptoms individually they're all you know aspects of normal human experience you know everyone's had times where they have not needed as much sleep as as normal because they were excited or they were nervous about like a board exam coming up or something um uh you know everyone's had times where they talked more than than other people and so really like really trying to um, obtain this history of a a period of a discrete period of time where all these symptoms are happening at the same time. You know, I think that that's really important for the bipolar disorder diagnosis, uh, you know, on top of the change in level of functioning. So whereas, you know, where in this patient, you know, those things are pretty clear, you know, he, he uh, wasn't sleeping, he was having like grandiose ideas, and um, it was clearly causing like, you know, relationship, you know, functional impairments in his relationships. I would say that this patient, you know, uh, the, the, the narrative that you're presenting, you know, it's a, it's a pretty convincing narrative for a, a manic episode. This episode is brought to you by Uncommon Goods. If you want to hear, where did you get that this holiday season? Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. I was actually looking at the site earlier today, and I ended up shopping almost exclusively for myself. They have this scratch-off movie poster where you can scratch off one of the 100 movies and see the movie art underneath it. They have a hot sauce advent calendar. They have whiskey-scented soap. So I've, I've got myself all shopped for, and I look forward to shopping for my friends and family soon. 
And when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting small artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so you should shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the United States. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to the nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash curb. That's uncommongoods.com slash curb for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. Yeah, because I've had like you're saying, a discrete period of time, because I've had some patients like, yeah, there was one time where I was spent too much money and uh, I've had depression in the past, but, you know, they're not they're not really hitting. Maybe they've had a, a brief time where they had one one of these symptoms. But you're saying this is like at least a week for 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 mania, the bipolar one. It has to be at least a week. It has to be really severe. Right. That's the difference between hypomania and mania is hypomania is a little less severe the functional mm-hmm. impairment is not as severe. Right. Um, any other differentiators between the two? Um, hypomania doesn't have to last as long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think hypomania, you know, um, just has to last four days or more. Um, with mania, it has to be at least a week or it could be less than a week if a person is hospitalized. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they become so manic that they have to, you know, get brought to the emergency department, they get hospitalized, they get um, treated with medications and, uh, you know, the the episode is... Um, treated in less than a week we would still consider that a manic episode Mm. though um and uh yeah the functional impairment um is and psychosis is i i've seen that happen as well i guess yes um so so it's usually not it's less subtle uh it seems like hypomania could be a little bit a a little bit more subtle if um if you're not like closely if you're not around the person in close contact all the time but yeah, yeah. Hypomania is definitely more subtle. Um, and some people may even function better when they're hypomanic. And so they may get more work done and be more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, be more creative. Um, I'm glad you mentioned psychosis because psychosis is something else that would, uh, uh, push them over from, uh, hypomania to, to mania. So if they have psychotic symptoms, that, that would, uh, automatically categorize them as, uh, as having, uh, full mania as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's a really challenging diagnosis to make and uh but you know i think in this in this case you know this this patient is telling you know a very uh, a, a very consistent history that you know that's consistent with with a bipolar manic episode mm-hmm. and you know especially if they like elicited um or if they volunteered this on their own with like minimal prompting from you um i think that that would you know really uh increase like the the diagnostic probability um you know with with mania i i, I like to just kind of give them like a question stem, like ask them, like, have there been times where you did the opposite of depressed or supercharged for a week at a time and kind of uh, leave it at that and, and ask them to come to me with the rest of the symptoms. You know, I try not to, I try not to list off the rest of the, the, um, the DSM five criteria. Cause I don't want them to, you know, just say, Oh yeah, I had that. And I had that, I had that, you know, I want them to come to me and actually tell me what their last episode was like and see if their description of their most recent, you know, uh, so-called manic episode, uh, would meet criteria for, for a DSM five, you know, manic episode. So with bipolar one, that's if they've had one episode that qualified as mania, even if they've never been depressed, they, they get that diagnosis bipolar one, right? That's correct. Yeah. Many times they, their initial mood episode will be a depressive episode, but, um, sometimes, yeah, they will present initially with the manic episode that that happens Mm -hmm. as well. 
And how about uh, for the audience, just the how bipolar two and then cyclothymic disorder, how, how are those different? Yeah. So with bipolar two, um, these patients have never had a manic episode, but they have, ha- they have had hypomanic episodes. Um, and then, um, also, uh, uh, almost always like they've also had numerous major depressive episodes mm-hmm. as well. Um, with cyclothymic disorder, they have had numerous episodes of, uh, sub-threshold hypomanic symptoms. So symptoms, so episodes that don't meet full criteria for hypomania. And they also, um, have had numerous periods of subthreshold, like depressive episodes as well that don't fu- fully meet criteria for major depressive episode. Mm. That seems like one where you'd, it, it'd be kind of hard to make the diagnosis in one visit. You'd have to follow the person for a long time. And uh, it just seemed, I, it seems kind of vague. I, that's not a diagnosis that I see often on charts. I, maybe in a psychiatrist office it is, but in primary care, Paul, have you seen that diagnosis? I can't imagine a world where I had had the courage to make that diagnosis. And no, I haven't seen it very often either. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, I think even, even, um, in psychiatry practice, it's, it's a diagnosis that's made very rarely, um, mm-hmm. because like you said, it, you, you do have to follow a patient for a very long time to really, you know, make the case that they, they meet that pattern of, you know, never having been too manic to be, you know, fully yeah. manic or meet criteria for a bipolar disorder, never having been so depressed that they meet, you know, criteria for a major depressive disorder. Um, it takes time to, you know, establish like a lot of this diagnosis like mm-hmm. that. Okay. So you, you mentioned earlier, some of the things that we want to make sure, you know, we're not missing like schizoaffective disorder, um, or uh, substance use, you said endocrine disorders like uh, thyroid disorder as a potentially causing someone to be depressed or um, mm-hmm. or I guess te- some of these could cause mania as well, substance mm-hmm. substances and things. How is schizoaffective disorder different than bipolar? Because those, those seem pretty close and you can have psychosis with bipolar, so it seems like it might be hard to figure that out. It, it is hard to figure that out. And uh, it, it's also one of those things that uh, can be hard to figure out until you've followed a patient for, for a, you know, a long time. Um, so with schizoaffective disorder, the, the, psycho- the psychotic disorder is the primary disorder. So they will have um, symptoms of psychosis, such as hallucinations or delusions, even in the absence of a mood episode. Uh, whereas in bipolar disorder, the mood disorder is primary. So they will only have uh, hallucinations, delusions when they're, when they're having a manic episode or when they're having a depressive episode. So it's really important to see like when they're euthymic or when their mood is normal, like, do they have any, any psychotic symptoms? And you can try to ask them that on interview. Um, but really, yeah, you know, the, the best way to know for sure really is to, you know, follow, follow someone for a long time. Okay. That's good. So, uh, Deb, um, what else? What else do we want to ask about here? Uh, are we Are we ready to get to treatment, or do we have other things we need to know about um, our patient here? I don't think we gave him a name. We're just twenty year old college student. So twenty uh, year old, co- yeah, we're HIPAA compliant. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, Deb. It's so responsible of you. <laughs> um, I think um, like looking at other other mimickers. Um, what are some like? potential physiological causes or, or, uh, drugs that could, could mimic bipolar disorder. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, um, with substances, uh, things that could cause mania, you know, include stimulants like methamphetamines, cocaine, 
dissociative substances, uh, you know, depressants, uh, cause depressive symptoms, you know, things like alcohol or opioids, um, physiological things. Uh, so for example, things like, uh, um, hypothyroidism, you know, could present with some symptoms of depression. Hyperthyroidism can sometimes present with like manic symptoms. Um, if someone's receiving steroid treatment that can, you know, present with manic symptoms, I think pe more people have like neuropsychiatric side effects of steroids than we really fully appreciate. Mm. And so, um, you know, I, I've seen patients, um, develop, you know, mania and psychosis, you know, while they're being treated with prednisone or even, um, even while, while the, uh, like prednisone is being tapered, I've seen, um, patients develop like, uh, uh, psychotic or manic, manic, um, symptoms, which seems really odd. And I don't really have a great explanation for why that is, but I've, I, it's something that I've seen mul multiple times, uh, in my career. Yikes. That's, yeah. so this is somebody that was on it for giant cell arteritis or some high dose yeah. and they're on a long, slow taper. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, yeah, so, so, um, you know, just because it's being tapered, I wouldn't rule out steroids as, as being the, the cause, um, you know, more rare things like, you know, perineoplastic encephalitis, uh, you know, or, um, uh, limbic encephalitis, um, could, uh, could present with like manic, manic, like symptoms, you know, I think if someone is, um, like, Postictal, they can you know present with like psychosis. Sometimes it can look like mania in, in cross section. One of the more challenging things though is just kind of differentiating between bipolar disorder and the the other psychiatric comorbidities that it could present as you know such as for example like borderline personality disorder where they have you know very rapid mood shifts. But those tend to be like very um, rapid, you know, kind of multiple moods within a day, and it's uh, a lot of the core is a lot of uh, interpersonal instability, so fears of abandonment and um, you know, unstable self-image, you know, things like that. Um, or like ADHD, which can cause a lot of, um, a lot of impulsivity that can look like mania, but, um, ADHD is also something that like, doesn't just last for a week, you know, ADHD is something that, you know, goes, uh, you know, it's lifelong. And so, um, so getting that uh, chronological history, uh, is really important for, you know, differentiating between, you know, something like bipolar disorder and ADHD. The the irritability f part of uh, of bipolar isn't isn't one that I had thought about as much like because mm -hmm. that that second question on the CID CIDI mm -hmm. three that you talked about is talking about have you been irritable for like a prolonged period of time and you were getting in fights or yelling at people I, do you, is that one harder to diagnose than the just the typical like person's really happy and. <laughs> having sex with everyone and gambling and starting businesses and all those kind of things. Yeah, it, it is more challenging. Um, uh, and I classically, you know, we think of like the euphoric manic patient who is, you know, gambling, having sex with everyone, right. thinks that they're the mayor, or the president, and they're, you know, just on top of the world. Uh, but in reality, like um, patients with mania are actually usually quite miserable um, because they have a lot of that irritability or there's a lot of like mixed depressive symptoms mixed mm -hmm. in there. And so like class classically, we think about, you know, patients being like this, like very euphoric, but in, in reality, many of these patients are like very angry. Um, they can be very, uh, feeling very hopeless. You know, I remember patients, you know, um, uh, screaming about how like happy they are, but then at the, you know, uh, also saying like, but I, at the same time, I feel so depressed and I, I want to die. Um, and so there's, uh, I think mixed, mixed symptoms are very common in these patients. And so very often you're going to see 
depressive symptoms and like irritability mixed in instead of just like pure euphoria. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think we should start to delve into treatment. And it seems like with our, our 20 year old uh, name withheld that uh, he, he definitely has uh, what, what's concerning for bipolar. Mm-hmm. So it, he's had depression and it also sounds like he's had mania or manic symptoms. So how would you approach the, the treatment? Cause there's, there's just so many medications and, um, it, it can't, it can seem overwhelming. So if you could give us a framework, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. I think with treatment of bipolar disorder, um, it's really con- important to consider like what phase of the illness that you're treating, because there's, uh, different treatments for, uh, mania compared to bipolar depression. Mm-hmm. So, um, th- in this case, you know, the patient is presenting with a major depressive episode there. It doesn't seem from the case presentation, it doesn't seem like there's any mixed manic features in there. Like, you know, he, you know, maybe was like talking back to his mom a little bit, but I wouldn't call that like abnormal irritability for like a 20 year old who's dragged into the office by, by their mom. Um, you know, I'm not hearing about any other like currently active manic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so we're looking at, you know, the depressive, acute depressive phase of the illness. And unfortunately, for, with bipolar disorder, the depressive phases of the illness are the most common phases of the illness. Also, um, also the phase of the illness that has um, more limited treatment options. And so with the um, more commonly used FDA-approved treatments would include um, lorazidone and quetiapine. You know, those are, those are two uh, uh, FDA-approved treatments for bipolar depression. Um, uh, lamotrigine is another option, but the titration is quite slow, and so um, is you know usually more helpful for the maintenance phase than the um, than the you know kind of acute depressive phase. So, uh, Kevin, can you? What what's confusing to me is that b- because sometimes patients are only having depression, but they have bipolar, and we're worried they will develop mania. Do we always have to give them an agent that covers both? Because I think I think a lot of the agents cover both, but not all of them do. So how how do you sort that out? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. Um, so the the treatment for different phases is, is different, but there are a lot of medications that will cover for both. Uh, so for example, like a lot of the atypical antipsychotics. Um, they're all they're all useful for treating the manic symptoms. It's actually the depressive phase of the illness that's more challenging because there's fewer medications that have been shown to be effective for the depressive phase mm-hmm. of the illness. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, really, it's making sure that you're covering for the depressive side of the illness. That's actually the most challenging side. Um, so in terms of things that are approved for uh, treating the depressive phase of the illness, uh, uh, that would include quetiapine, um, lorazidone. Uh, those are two. Uh, you know, very commonly used atypical antipsychotic options. Um, another option is lamotrigine, but lamotrigine, because of the risk of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, you have to titrate that very slowly. So that's less useful in the acute phase of the illness and, you know, more more useful uh, in, in the maintenance setting. Um, there are other medications that are helpful for um, uh, helpful for the manic symptoms, for example, like valproic acid, but that um, doesn't help as much for depression. Uh, lithium can can be helpful for both um, uh, for both phases of the illness, uh, but lithium can also be more challenging to use in the primary care setting because of the lab monitoring. Yeah, so that is that one that you generally recommend we stay away from. Yeah, unless you have a, a you know really close uh, a friend who is a psychiatrist that you can uh, you know uh, 
check in with for for help. Um, I, it has a, a narrow therapeutic index, um, a narrow therapeutic window. So, uh, you know, patients can get in trouble with toxicity. They also there's a lot of drug drug interactions. Like for example, um, NSAIDs or um, a lot of the diuretics can increase lithium levels and uh, trigger toxicity. So it's it's a great medicine. It's a life saving medicine. Um, but you just have to be really careful and you know do a lot of patient education. Um, and so you know I think it can be done in primary care setting, especially, you know, in like collaboration with the psychiatrist. I think um, uh, using an atypical antipsychotic uh, in the primary care setting is a lot more practical um, because the laboratory monitoring is a lot less frequent. There's less um, like acute toxicity that you have to watch out for. Yeah, this I get that, and that kind of addresses the question that I had. This feels sort of like a prototypic situation where in primary care, you have someone who presents depressive symptoms. You're like, I'm concerned for bipolar disorder. How much harm can I do? <laughs> this might not be a question that you can answer as a primary care doctor, sort of starting with, say, quetiapine, just to be on the safe side to do something just because access, as I'm sure you're aware, to behavioral health can be really, really challenging. And, you know, I, it just feels so unsatisfying and potentially even harmful. Be like, you know, you're just going to have to wait until you see a psychiatrist months from now. Like, you know, you kind of want to do something in the moment is can you get into trouble? Assuming that you have the correct diagnosis, at least starting with the quetiapine or um or Latuda, um, remind me that the Lorazidone. Yep. Yeah. Like is, is there, what's the downside, I guess, or sort of what kind of harms can we have if we have less of a nuanced approach than you might have? Sure. Yeah. I think the, the main downside for, you know, things like, uh, Lorazidone or Quetiapine, um, would be, you know, short term, you know, they can have more metabolic side effects, especially with like Quetiapine, um, Lorazidone, there is a risk of weight gain, you know, increased blood sugar, cholesterol, things like that. But it seems fairly minimal, comp especially compared to the other atypical antipsychotics. Things like um, NMS would be like very rare, especially at like low doses that we're using, um, especially low, low doses that we're starting in primary care. Um, there's also risk of like extrapyramidal side effects. So you know, tremors, uh, rigidity, um, with long-term use, uh, typically after years, um, you could develop like tardive dyskinesia, um, which, you know, presents typically with like involuntary movements of the, the mouth or tongue, but it can involve other parts of the body. Um, but that's something that typically doesn't, uh, doesn't manifest until, you know, an extended period of treatment, you know, usually years. Yeah. These are some scary side effects. I think that's why the, you know, bipolar has always been something that I, I try to get people to go see psychiatry for because, I mean, all my patients already have metabolic syndrome. So just like starting right. about a medication that is going to worsen it is, a, is always, is never like a prospect that I look forward to. And then you talk about uh, lithium. Sounds like that's not super easy to use unless you're familiar with it, uh, more familiar with it than the average primary care or have, have you as like a best friend that you can just like have on speed dial. Um, and then you have, I, I think, uh, Devalproex or Valproate, you know, that one, uh, that seems a little less scary to me, but I'm also not that familiar how to use it. So uh, maybe, maybe that's worth talking about a little bit more, like how you might start that and, and some of the typical dosing. Yeah, you know, I think with the Val Valproex, you know, especially in someone who's not like acutely manic, you know, I would I would typically start low just to make sure that they're tolerating it uh, well. So you know, something like two hundred fifty milligrams twice a day, um, and then titrating gradually. Um, it, it is a medicine where um, you know we we do therapeutic. Uh, uh, drug level monitoring as well. So typically after like uh, 
four or five half-lives, I'll, I'll ask the patient to get a trough level drawn in the lab if possible, just so I, we can see where, where, where it's at. In terms of the total level, you know, we usually like to aim for something like kind of seven, 70, to, 70 to 90, somewhere in that range. Many, many patients will develop like asymptomatic hyperaminemia with it. it um, it's, it's actually very common when they're taking valproic acid. It's, uh, I would say it's, it's more uncommon for someone to be taking valproic acid and have a normal ammonia. And so I, I usually don't worry about it unless it's like really, you know, like, you know, like twice the, you know, upper limit of normal or if they're having like clinical symptoms. Um, but, uh, you know, you'll see recommendations for checking that. The other thing is to kind of keep in mind with valproic acid would just be um, risk of like uh, uh, thrombocytopenia. So, you know, checking a CBC, uh, you know, I would check it, you know, I think once every six months is probably what I would do. Um, check And also keeping an eye on LFTs, you know, um, ideally like once every six months as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, I think this causes weight gain as well, right? Yeah. I mean, like all, pretty much all Yeah, Valproic can cause weight gain. It can cause uh, hair loss. Um, you know, in terms of like weight neutral options, like lorazidone is really probably one of the more metabolically friendly. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there is some risk, but especially compared to other atypical antipsychotics like quetiapine or especially olanzapine. Um, the lorazidone typically does not cause very much weight gain. Um, mm-hmm. Lamotrigine is also something that is usually weight neutral for most patients. It just takes takes time to titrate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So for for the acute phase lamotrigine, you told us uh, you can't titrate too quickly because of Steven Johnson. So that's kind of off the table. It sounds like catiapine's a good one because it it's kind of it, it's good for depressive symptoms if they're mm-hmm. if they're having a depressive episode, but it can also treat more of the mixed symptoms if they have that. Yeah, yeah, it can be helpful for for mania. Um, it's not a particularly potent antipsychotic, so if they're truly like manic and having a lot of psychotic symptoms, it might not be enough to really uh, mm. control their symptoms. But you know, for the depressive phase of the illness or for maintenance, I think it's it's a good option. Um, and it you know, it's, yeah. a lot of patients already use it in primary care. Um, it's also can be useful for like anti antidepressant augmentation. So if it turns out that it's more of a major depressive disorder, it could still be used for, um, you know, they could still potentially add on an antidepressant to, you know, augment, uh, use it as an augmentation treatment. And so, uh, yeah, cotypine is, you know, an, uh, something that I recommend a lot in, um, in the primary care setting. Mm-hmm. And the doses, like what, how high is the dose going? Is it 300 yeah, typically or... like, yeah, like, you know, 300, 300 milligrams, you know, it's, it's kind of the target that I aim for, you know, but different patients will respond to different doses. I mm-hmm. usually try to start with like 25 or 50 milligrams um, at bedtime, and then I'll uh, gradually increase it in like 50 milligram increments um, uh, until I get to, you know, about 300 milligrams or until their symptoms get, get better. Is there... A, a scale that you're tracking the symptoms with, like in the same way that you can use for the, the PHQ-9, like is there something that you use? Do you just use the similar tools for, for these patients as well in terms of tracking? Yeah, so for bipolar, for, yeah, bipolar depression, I use the PHQ-9 as well. All right, that's good. I'm, yep. I'm comfortable I, with I, that. I that <laughs> yep, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, that, that, that part's easy. Um, at least that part's the same. Yeah. yeah. So for so for this guy that we are twenty year old uh, name withheld, let's say he didn't have any kind of weight problems. So we we start him on catiapine fifty milligrams, and then we follow him every two three weeks and kind of uh, adjust the dose. And we're we're following for met- signs of metabolic syndrome because I, I read that this is a biopsychosocial, so that it's not just mm-hmm. the medication. You also want to do some things to set this this guy up for success. 
So what what else? What other counseling would you give to him and his mother at that visit? Um, and then we'll we'll go on and we'll, we'll have another case where we talk a little bit more about some of the maintenance medications. Sure. Yeah. So you know, I would really counsel counsel uh, the patient and mom on the importance of uh, just leading an overall healthy lifestyle, uh, especially sleep hygiene. So for patients with bipolar disorder, you know, having disrupted sleep can be really risky for triggering a, a manic episode. And so I would really emphasize the importance of, you know, going to bed at a regular time, you know, waking up at the same time, um, you know, working night shift is probably something that would be, you know, risky for, you know, a patient like this. And also just, you know, uh, healthy diet, exercise, those things have antidepressant effects and, you know, also useful, especially in the case of, you know, taking medications that can cause metabolic side effects. Um, and, you know, I would also just tell, uh, in- encourage mom to, you know, bring her, bring her son in if there's, if she's noticing, you know, changes in mood again, either like too high or too low or increased irritability, uh, because, you know, getting, um, you know, treating these mood episodes early or getting treatment started is really important. Awesome. Fantastic. Anything, Deb, anything else for this case? Like, so we, we've put him on treatment, we've counseled him and his mother, and uh, do we have a happy ending here? Or do we have to go into uh, any anything else, any other like tweaks you want to make to the case or other scenarios? No, I, I think it's, I think it's a, a happy ending. Um, I mean, I, I remember being taught, you know, during medical school that antidepressants are a, a complete non sequitur, a complete no with bipolar. But, you know, it does seem kind of cruel that we're, we're not treating the depression as effectively as it could potentially. Um, is it still the case that antidepressants are like a hard no um, for patients with bipolar? That's a great question. Um, I would say um, with, with antidepressants, you know, I think there's two risks to think about in patients with bipolar disorder. There's the risk of inducing a manic episode, uh, which, uh, you know, can, can certainly happen. Um, or making their uh, their mood episodes like more rapid cycling, the the other kind of more insidious risk is just that the antidepressant isn't going to work for their bipolar depression. So bipolar depression just doesn't seem to respond to traditional antidepressant medications as well. So if you throw antidepressants at them, even if you don't make them manic, you you might just not be helping them and like leaving them depressed for longer. And so um, those are kind of two two risks to kind of think about. There are some patients with bipolar disorder, you know, especially like bipolar two disorder, who will respond to antidepressants, though. Um, and so uh, it's not something that I will never consider, but I would definitely want them to be on a therapeutic dose of a mood stabilizing medication before I consider adding on an antidepressant carefully. Mm. Um, so, for example, like in this case, like I would want this uh, this young man to be on a decent dose of uh, quetiapine or lorazidone or valproic acid or something, lithium, uh, before I would consider adding on like a low dose of antidepressant carefully. Yeah. Are there any of the traditionally used antidepressants that are particularly dangerous in terms of precipitating a manic episode? Like I would think, and like propion, I feel like can be a little bit activating. Like is that one that sends people sort of straight into mania? Are there ones that we should be a little bit more mindful of or does it not seem to matter so much? That's a good question. Um, I'm not aware of data comparing the risk of mania between different antidepressants. Um, it, it, it certainly might be out there, but I'm not aware of it. Um, I think bupropion actually is actually used uh, more commonly in treatment with bipolar disorder. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is that it has a shorter half-life. So if someone does become manic, you know, you can stop it and it washes out pretty quickly. 
Um, so, so I would say, you know, bupropion, even though, even though it is, you know, more stimulating and, you know, it certainly can, um, can cause mania, you know, it, it, it is something that, that you'll see, you know, used in patients with bipolar disorder if they're already on like a mood stabilizing medication to, to, uh, act as prophylaxis against mania. Okay. So we talked about, uh, just to recap the meds, uh, before we go for the acute phase dep- for depression, ketiapine and lorazidone seem like the ones that are, you know, best at treating the acute phase of depression, lamotrigine more for like the maintenance phase of depression and because you have to start it more slowly. We talked about lorazidone having less of the, some of the less weight gain. It's a little more metabolically friendly than mm-hmm. ketiapine. And then for, for mania, lithium, some of the anticonvulsants like um, valproic acid uh, is a possibility. There's a lot of monitoring we talked about with valproic acid. Um, and then including trough levels. And uh, then we talked about most of the anti, uh, atypical antipsychotics or second generation antipsychotics have some effect uh, to, as a mood stabilizer as well. And then talking about just healthy lifestyle, uh, exercise, sleep schedule, and then early intervention like family members and the patient themselves, just if they start to notice things going south, they, they need to come in and, and adjust, adjust things to make sure it doesn't get out of control. As Deb asked, the conventional antidepressants we worry about n- not being effective for the depression and also maybe rapid cycling or sending someone into mania. So that's kind of it we've talked about for treatment. Deb, let's get to our, our last case and just the last few questions. Yeah, so this is a patient who's coming to you um, it's a 34-year-old patient who presents to your outpatient clinic to establish care. Their only past medical history is a bipolar dis- diagnosis. Um, they take lithium daily, um, and they've been taking that since they were diagnosed with bipolar disorder around seven years ago. Uh, they have no health concerns today, uh, and they just want you to fill out a pre-employment form. How would you manage a patient who's presenting with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder? If you see it in the chart, does that mean it's true? And we just kind of move on and don't ask any more questions and write this script for lithium. Yeah. So, um, you know, like we uh, talked about, um, you know, before the show, I think bipolar disorder, on the one hand, it's uh, very underdiagnosed, but on the other hand, it's also at the same time overdiagnosed. And so just because someone has bipolar disorder in the chart, you can't really can't trust that they they truly have bipolar disorder. Um, you know, patients with bipolar disorder, uh, oftentimes they'll go 10 years before they are diagnosed because they keep presenting with depressive episodes. Um, but then there's also so many mimickers, you know, things like, uh, you know, like borderline personality disorder, PTSD, ADHD, substance use that we talked about earlier, that oftentimes patients with those conditions may incorrectly get diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So it's always important to, you know, kind of do your own homework and, you know, ask the patient, uh, um, uh, you know, take a take a full history and a patient like this, where they come with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. I will I will um, ask them. You know, how did how are you diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Um, you know, who made the diagnosis? What was happening? And I'll I'll often ask them like, what symptoms made this doctor c- concerned that you had bipolar disorder? Because a lot of times, you know, the the patients will just say, oh well, you know, I I get angry really fast, and so they said I was bipolar disorder. And then I might explore further and say, well, you know, how long does those, those anger episodes last? You know, do they ever last like a full week? Uh, you know, um, 
And they say, no, you know, I just, I just get angry at the drop of a hat and then I cool off after 30 minutes. And, you know, that tells me that it's probably not bipolar disorder. It's probably, you know, like any number of other, you know, kind of like borderline personality disorder or PTSD or other things that are causing like kind of that moment to moment lability. But if they, if they tell me like, oh, you know, I uh, had a manic episode where I went a whole week without sleep and then I, um, you know, got really angry. I told my boss that, you know, that, um, they were the you know worst boss in the world and I bought a Ferrari and I raced it downtown and crashed it and then you know then uh, okay yeah we're you know that's a that's a different story you know, we're talking you probably have bipolar disorder then so when you said that for some reason and Paul uh, you'll probably you'll probably remember I just remember the beginning of Happy Gilmore where he's like I had a real bad temper and it shows him like I don't know throwing a hockey stick at somebody or something. And he goes, but I was quick to apologize. And then it shows him giving another kid like a back massage. Do you remember that, Paul? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, of course. Just like, that's, so that's not, but you're saying that's not bipolar. That's just the guy that got angry and, yeah. you know, yeah. he apologized. Cer- <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly could be other things going on, but it's not bipolar. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask about the the medication. I mean, this this patient's taking lithium. So if we have someone on lithium and this does come up once in a while and they're like, can you refill this? I've been on it for years. What should we, what should we check uh, just to make sure it's okay? And of course, we'll probably refer to a psychiatrist to help us with this, but wh- what would you do? Absolutely. So for, um, for lithium, you know, we, um, really want to, it can, it can cause a lot of different side effects. So, um, you know, renal impairment, uh, hypothyroidism, uh, it can cause hyperparathyroidism. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we want to look out for. Um, I would, in a patient like this, I would check their, their chemistry panel to, you know, check their, um, their renal, renal function, check their calcium level. I would also check their TSH. Um, and uh, make sure that their TSH is okay. So those would be, you know, kind of some of the the, the basic labs that I I would get in a situation mm-hmm. like this uh, if they're taking lithium. Okay. And uh, if they were coming to us and they hadn't been on anything, and mm-hmm. let's say they're not in any kind of episode right now, they're not in a depressive episode, they're not in a, they they they're not manic. What what would you recommend we use as an approach for medication here? Yeah, I would I would ask why they're not on any medication, um, and you know they it, they may have had side effects or other bad experiences, or maybe they just lost touch with their psychiatrist. Uh, you know that's something that that does happen. Um, and you know I would just talk to them about how you know with with their bipolar illness, it's lifelong, and you know being on a preventative medication um, is the safest thing in terms of you know keeping them from developing you know either manic or depressive episodes, um, and try to explore that. Yeah. yeah. And so if we wanted to start anything at this mm-hmm. point, is it is it kind of like dealer's choice? We could start Lamotrigine, we could start, uh, you know, Ketiapine, Lorazidone, any of those ones we talked about? I, th- I think so. You know, I would ask like what has historically been most helpful for the patient. As the patient says, like, you know, Ketiapine or Lamotrigine was most helpful. Um, I would I would try to restart that. Uh, the the other thing to consider is just historically what has been the most impairing uh, phase of the illness. You know, are they mm-hmm. someone who has a lot of depressive episodes, or are they someone who has a lot of manic episodes? Um, try to figure out, you know, what which phase of the illness is most impairing for them, mm-hmm. and try to tailor the treatment to that. Paul, do you? I I know you probably have encountered this before. Do you have any other questions about this? specific scenario where it's just the patient comes to you and they're like, I have bipolar. And you're like, I don't see any medicines on here. You, I, you, you take buckwheat once a day and <laughs> vitamin D. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. Biotin supplement. No, it's, I, I, I think 
the instruction to sort of ask specifically how the diagnosis was made and what was happening at the time. I, I did for for patients like this who seem ostensibly stable or you know, or even if you're if you're fairly sure of like a of a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I wonder if you couldn't talk a little bit about suicidality. I think even with depression, mm-hmm. a lot of times we ask and then you just kind of close your eyes and grit your teeth and just hope that the patient says no and then you're done with the question um for the visit and you can sort of breathe a sigh of relief. But I guess what for patients with with true bipolar disorder, how concerned should we be about suicidality? How do we approach that? How often do we sort of screen for it, um, even in the absence of overt depressive symptoms? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, um, you know, a, a suicide is a um, certainly a, a risk for you know patients with bipolar disorder, and um, it's something that I would screen at every visit. You know, even if they're asymptomatic or in you know in the remission phase of the illness, I would still ask them at, at every visit uh, because it it is something that. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, many patients with bipolar disorder will attempt suicide and, you know, uh, uh, some of them will even die by suicide, unfortunately. So any last minute questions, Deb, um, that, that you wanted to get to uh, before we go to take home points? In terms of like other diagnoses that this patient may have, um, I was reading a little bit about uh, there being a discrepancy racial discrepancy between, you know, bipolar and uh, schizophrenia diagnoses. Is there, you know, a way that as a a primary care physician that we may be able to step in, get a little bit more history and try to try to help kind of steer them in the right direction? Because I know there, you know, there, there would be different medication approaches to both of those conditions. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's, uh, you know, racial bias in medicine, you know, um, uh, unfortunately, that, that, um, that that happens. It's something that we you know we all have to have to work to address. Um, I think you know patients, uh, um, uh, minority patients, especially like African Americans, they have a higher rate of being diagnosed with you know uh, serious mental illnesses, like for example, like schizophrenia, um, uh, compared to uh, you know compared to to white Americans. And so I think um, when you know working with uh, uh, minority patients, uh, when they come with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it's it's even more important to explore like how did you get that diagnosis and really um, try to make sure that they you know, actually meet criteria for that uh, you know for that um, for that condition, and you know try to refer them to to specialists who can help with you know uh, clarifying the the diagnosis. Those diagnoses in particular are like the scarlet letters of the problem list, like once they're on there, you cannot get them off it forever. And they're just sort of self-perpetuated. So it's, yeah, if you can, yeah. Removing problems off a of problem list is one of my few joys in life. So yeah, if you can do yeah. that for a patient, sprinkle, that has to be a sprinkle in some sarcoidosis, Paul. Oh we my talked God. About <laughs> <laughs> I find, I, I find AFib tends to stick to problem lists too. Like even if, you know, even if they've never had AFib sometimes. Yeah, there's so many patients that, you know, maybe they show up to the emergency department intoxicated on, you know, stimulants or something once, and then they get diagnosed with schizophrenia and it sticks with them in the chart forever. Mm-hmm. My final question, we were, we're talking a little bit off here about this, but what am I to do with cannabis um, for these patients? Like, I, we, we talked a little bit about sort of the co-occurring substance use, but I, I know it, it's it's become so prevalent um, in so many states and so many patients are really, um, really find it helpful for their anxiety and for sleeping and all that kind of stuff. But I know there is some evidence that um, it may worsen outcomes in certain populations. How, how do I counsel patients and what should I talk to them about if they if they have, say, daily cannabis use too? 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, especially with cannabis becoming much more culturally accepted these days. You know, I think it's uh, creates a unique challenge for physicians, especially when we're taking care of patients with mental illness, um, where there's limited evidence for for benefit, and also uh, there is evidence for harm. You know, in, in some cases. So um, I typically start by just acknowledging that the patient is doing what they're doing for a reason. You know, they're um, they're not trying to harm themselves. They're usually just trying to, you know self-medicate or feel better. So I'll ask them, you know, what does the cannabis help you with? Mm -hmm. Um, and start the conversation that way. Um, you know, they may say it helps me with sleep or helps me with appetite or something. And we can maybe open up, uh, you know, opportunities to address it in other ways. And then I'll also, you know, just talk to them about how, you know, yes, many of your friends may smoke cannabis and they, they, they might be fine and doesn't cause any problems, but because, you know, you have like bipolar disorder or you have like schizophrenia, for example, you know, your, your brain is different and your brain is going to be more sensitive to the side effects of it. And so, um, that's something that, you know, it's really important to, to think about. Paul, are you, are you uh, satisfied? When you first asked about, can you? What am I to do with cannabis? I was like, Paul, are you asking for tips on how to? Do you, <laughs> do you know? Do you anyone? have some? And you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a guy? Um, no, that, 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 that's actually that's very helpful. Yeah, I think that's and a great point. Sort of what what benefits are they getting out of it, and can we help them in another way, or at least sort of address those issues? I think is, is a great way to frame it. So that's that's terrific. Thank you. So Kevin, we we've come such a long way. We talked. Uh, extensively about the diagnosis. Uh, we, we've been through the treatment, the medications. And uh, now, just if there was a couple things that you wanted the audience to definitely remember from this conversation, what would those be as, as your take-home points? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, number one, like the classic kind of Siggy Caps uh, symptoms, those, that's a um, diagnostic criteria for a major depressive episode, not major depressive disorder. So if someone has a major depressive episode, you still have to try to figure out, is it major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder or something else that's causing it? Um, the other thing is that diagnosing bipolar disorder is really hard, even for psychiatrists. And um, it's something that uh, is very difficult to do on an initial visit. And even you know, experienced psychiatrists oftentimes will have to follow patients for an extended period of time before we can truly be certain of the diagnosis. And so, um, you know, don't, don't feel like you have to have the diagnosis on the first visit, just, you know, having it on your radar and knowing, um, how suspicious to be of it is, is probably the most important part because realistically it's a very challenging diagnosis to, to make like, you know, in a, in a single visit. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry to ask this now, but I, I think we had talked about this, but like, so with a patient where you, you're not sure in that first visit, but you have suspicion, they should use the medications that we talked about for as if this were bipolar. Is that just the safest way to go? Yeah, I think it, it depends on kind of how suspicious you are. You know, sometimes I may start like a low dose of an antidepressant, and just counsel them really clearly. Like, you know, if you develop, you know, changes in mood, like, you know, irritability, uh, increases in mood, decreased need for sleep, you know, definitely tell me immediately. Um, on the other hand, if, you know, they have a strong family history and I'm, you know, leaning more towards, I think that this is a bipolar disorder, then yeah, I, I probably would treat them with, you know, um, bi bipolar medication. Um, and, and yeah, the other, I think the other take home point would just be that, um, you know, bipolar depression, uh, does not respond to traditional antidepressants the way that major depressive disorder, depressive episodes do. And so, yeah. um, you know, there's, unfortunately our, our treatment options are much more limited. Um, but, um, it, but that's also why it's important to identify bipolar depression because the treatment is different. Okay. 
All right. Well, uh, if there's anything you'd like to plug, uh, feel free. Otherwise, we're, we'll let you go. And uh, this this has been great. Thank you so much. Sure. The um, the other thing I wanted to, to also just bring up is for bipolar depression. Just uh, you really can't understate the importance of psychotherapy as well, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, I think you asked earlier about, you know, what would I counsel the patient on? And, you know, in addition to like lifestyle factors, I would really encourage them to engage in cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Um, Cause you know, like I, I don't have a pill that's going to fix, you know, this, uh, you know, patient's relationship problems or change their, you know, school stressors and things like that. So, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is going to be a really important tool to help um, change like how they relate to those those stressors and mm-hmm. and how they cope with that. Um, you know, it's uh, you know not not as helpful for mania because usually when patients are manic, they're they're not able to sit still long enough to do cognitive behavioral therapy. But uh, but certainly for the depressive uh, phase of the illness, it's uh, you know I really can't uh, can't overstate like how how important you know the the psychotherapy piece is for for a patient's right. recovery. Paul, CBT always a right answer, correct? <laughs> yeah, especially for boards. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. Um, Thank you so much, Kevin. Really, really awesome stuff. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) Great. Slightly ominous, which is probably appropriate. Still hungry for more? (laughs) Join our Patreon and get all of our episodes ad-free, plus twice-monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You can find our show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. It also helps if you subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. uh, So like and follow us on there. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Deborah Gorth, and to our whole Curbsiders team. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpace. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Chew Man Chew runs our Discord. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wada. And I've been Dr. Deborah Gorth. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.